Well, this seems like an odd thing to say in a room full of Christians, but if ever there were a day when it is really good to be Christian, this is the day, as if there's a day when it's not good. What I mean by that is this is an opportune time for us to shine because our country needs it so very, very badly. Uh, someone said this past week that it's as if our society is suffering an autoimmune uh, disease, that um, we have something that's attacking the body internally, attacking our own organs. And I think we're all well aware, I think I'm merely being descriptive, that uh, our country is in fragile health. So many are reflexively partisan, um, emotionally so sensitive, and spiritually anxious. It seems to me that we have lost the normal capacity, uh, which is really a mark of maturity, frankly, to be able to hold multiple things that may be in tension with each other uh, at the same time with, with a measure of um, equanimity, to consider it all at once. But I'm not sure that we see a lot of witnesses. I'll give you an example. We ought to be able to talk about the importance of taking every measure um, that we can to prevent the spread of coronavirus and at the same time be able to acknowledge the economic consequences of doing that. We ought to be able to acknowledge yet again in light of events of the past few weeks that Racial injustice is a real thing, and we have a lot more work to do than we may have thought we had to do. And at the same time, to be able to say that protests that are merely violent or, or uh, anarchical uh, are not good and undermine the goodwill that would do that other work. We ought to be able to hold all of that together, but we don't seem, as a culture, to be able to do that right now. It seems that those old, ancient Greek cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance have actually been forgotten after all in our day and age. Some wisdom from just in the last century, uh, the American author F. Scott Fitzgerald famously said the following once, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. One should, for example, be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. This is a strong thing I'm saying, but if you expect that kind of wisdom uh, from Washington, from cable news networks, or from your Twitter feed, uh, you're probably gonna be disappointed. <laughs> So where is our hope to come from? From where uh, is our hope to come? The psalmist says, look up. Our hope comes from the Lord. Our hope comes from the Lord Jesus. Only this, Jesus doesn't say what I would really like him to say today. You know, with all this going on in the world, what I really would have loved today is that the gospel reading had been one of those comfortable passages uh, where Jesus does something really, really beautiful. Uh, he says to us, uh, it's all going to be all right. Y'all are good. 
Um, that's not what he says today. Instead, he says, do you think I've come to bring peace to the world? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Really, we get that today in this environment, sort of a, a, a violent image. So this section from Matthew chapter 10 uh, is uh, sort of a part of a massive teaching and exhortations and instructions that Jesus is giving to his followers, to his disciples, those whom he sends out into a world that is hurting and lost and filled with, using his own language, scattered sheep who are scared and do not know the shepherd. And I don't think Jesus is being edgy today uh, to make a point. I think he is being genuinely challenging. This is a hard text from the Gospels. And it is hard, it is challenging in this way. Being a deeply committed Christian follower of Jesus will be a mark of distinction, a way of life that will inevitably put you at odds with the patterns and the assumptions and the ways of the world around you. And it may even bring social stigma, consequences that you would prefer not to have to suffer. Jesus' coming will, he says, set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Jesus is actually quoting here from uh, the book of the prophet Micah. Micah is, you know, located deep in the books of the prophets of the Old Testament. It's probably not one of the more familiar books of the Bible for many of us. But the prophet Micah was uh, writing a rather scorching indictment of the people of Israel in the 7th century B.C. for their failure to ensure justice for everyone. And what Micah is getting at is that the, the, the social, cultural, and political sins that they were all swimming in uh, were so enmeshed that they were even in families, the most basic, important social unit that there is. They were tearing apart even families. So Jesus reaches back to Micah to employ this language, this vision of families being rent asunder over a contest of loyalties and a vision of God. And I know it's easy for us to overlook this, uh, but we talk about it uh, a good bit here, that in the early centuries of the church, the cost of becoming a Christian, the cost of uh, leaving official Judaism if you were Jewish, or the cost of stepping out of sort of uh, Roman paganism if you were living in that environment, uh, was very high to become a Christian. The loss of social status in the community, the rejection of family and friends for doing that, damage to your professional opportunities, and even as we know in episodes, official persecution that could result in death by torture. And in recent decades, there's emerged um, a body of, of Christian scholarship asking this great question. It's a great question. Given the profound social and familial cost 
of becoming a Christian in the early centuries of the church. Why did anyone become a Christian in the first place? Why would you do it? That's a wonderful question. And here's, here's what we know from all kinds of testimony and literature. Those early Christian converts had a personal relationship with God through Jesus and they believed in, had the assurance of his resurrection promises. Number two, the relationships that they then began to develop with other believers was of such intensity, so powerful and so life-giving. It was like relationships they had never experienced before, even relationships in their own families and immediate social networks. And number three, the early Christians understood it was the highest, holiest privilege that they were ones whom God had called into the ongoing saving work of Christ for the world. That's why they were willing to pay the price because the gifts were infinitely greater. But Jesus wants his followers to know to lay claim to his saving work, truly to embrace the cross, is a very real thing. This is not theoretical, philosophical, theological, abstract. It is going to land you in places where you are in conflict, where you are in tension with the values and the patterns of the world around you. And the rub is that you may feel that most acutely in your own families with those who are closest to you as you begin to make more and more of that turn into the life of Christ. And this is not actually my experience. <laughs> it's not actually the experience of most Episcopalians. Uh, here, especially in a place like Nashville, Tennessee, so many of us were brought up uh, in environments that were very comfortable with Christianity. And for many mainline Christians, that's exactly what we became, comfortable. To be a Christian was not at all a costly decision. I don't remember when I was confirmed, for example, back in Virginia, that I had to think about the consequences um, that I was taking on that might have been negative. It was what my friends were doing. We were all in confirmation class together. It was what my brothers did. It was what my parents expected. And it was what all the decent people in town did. But there are a lot, and you have to know this, a lot of very thoughtful observers wondering if that is no longer the case. Even in a place like Nashville, I am hearing more and more of some of your stories, finding yourself at a dinner party, um, in the work environment, in casual conversations, maybe even in your own families where you feel pressure just to, just to keep quiet because what you think and believe and how you want to live your life is regarded as perhaps offensive. And again, what an opportunity, therefore, we have for this day, for this age. But let me be very clear. That ministry starts with ourselves. It starts by looking deep into our own hearts, examining our own lives. And I think in this unsettled time, the church is being called to repentance. To, to enter into that cognitive dissonance between the way we have been living and thinking as church, as Christians, and what the gospel actually calls us to. And that does feel uncomfortable, at least for me. 
a season of repentance, of genuine reappraisal of turning back to the Lord whose ways will lead us into contact and even conflict with all the dominant forces of darkness that swirl about us. And Jesus says this, be not afraid. Don't be afraid. Pick up your cross and follow me. So I'm not calling us, by the way, to be um, troublemakers, uh, to be rabble-rousers, pot-stirrers, and agitators. Uh, I guess there's a role for that uh, for Christians. Um, it's not in this moment what I'm calling us to. I'm just calling us to remember that Jesus is the ultimate truth-teller, and he wants to be very clear about the real calling that is before us. A contrast to the dominant ways of the world is, in fact, a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift we can offer the world. What if being different as Jesus' followers in choosing to make decisions and live lives out of sync with others is a way of, of, of creating in the other a space, a crack, if you will, where the Holy Spirit might wiggle in and they will ask themselves, well, what is it that makes you different in comparison to their own lives? And, and let God do something in that. The fact is that the early Christians suffered much, suffered much at the hands of the world, but the fact is also the case that countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands were so impressed and so moved and so convicted but what they saw in the movement of the spirit through those early Christians that they began to ask in their own hearts what is it that does make them different and thousands upon thousands upon thousands became Christian and the world changed indeed it was the 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that the cross of Jesus looks like a sword to the world. The cross of Jesus looks like a sword to the world. For where the cross is present in the world, this is what he meant, it will cut away all that sort of hides the forces of sin and death. It will cut it away and expose it. That's what the cross of Jesus does. And for those who want it all to stay hidden, it feels like a sword. The exposed body of Jesus exposes that truth. Yes, a crucified man reigns. And we get to be that body in the world today. So we come to church this Sunday. You're watching at home, wherever you may be. We all desperately want a good word that we can live well beyond the current crisis. That it's possible that we could be freed from the soul-killing rancor and intemperance of so much of what we see around us. That it is possible to live lives of real hope and joy and love in spite of all of this around us. So just remember, the victory of the church over the demonic power which was embodied in the Roman imperial system was not won by overthrowing Caesar and grasping the levers of power. 
It was one because things like this happened. A Christian was convicted of this superstition, this new religion, and brought out into the center of a Roman Colosseum with hundreds and hundreds of spectators there to watch. And just before his or her execution, he or she knelt down on the sand and in front of everybody prayed to God for forgiveness for themselves, for the emperor, and for everybody who was there. And in doing that, an entire way of being in the world was unmasked for those with eyes to see. The victory was won not with the weapons of the age, but with robes washed in blood.